On this episode of the podcast, we talk with Bruno Ricabon, author of Memoirs of a Refugee Girl. On Alakiski Chronicle, we feature interesting stories and people who shape our local history. The mission of the Allegheny Kiski Valley Historical Society and Heritage Museum is to interpret, preserve, and celebrate the cultural, industrial, and ethnic heritage of the Allegheny and Kiskimanitis River Valleys in southwestern Pennsylvania. I'm Jamie Stoner of the Allegheny Kiski Valley Historical Society and Heritage Museum. Our guest today is Pittsburgh author Bruna Ricabon. Her recent book, Memoirs of a Refugee Girl, is the story of a girl born in Italy during World War II. Bruna's story details the difficulty her family endured during the war, including three years she and her family spent in refugee camps in Italy and Germany. Bruna's remarkable story also tells of her family's immigration to America after the war and describes her struggle adjusting to a new language and culture in the suburban Pittsburgh mill town of Swissville. This fascinating first-hand account is told through a series of anecdotes that are informative, dramatic, and sometimes humorous. It is a must-read for anyone interested in history and the aftermath of war, written from the perspective of a woman who lived it. So, Bruno, would you start by telling me just a little bit about yourself? I grew up, after we arrived from Italy, I grew up in Swissville, and then I've uh, kind of moved around over the years because... Uh, after some menial jobs, I, got, I was working for PPG Industry for 31 years, and they transferred me a couple times, once to Chicago, once to New Jersey. I was in uh, marketing, sales and marketing, customer service, and I took early retirement because I wanted to devote my time to things I enjoy, like writing and artwork. So I retired at uh, 58, and they called me back a couple times, so I went back a couple times, but... And I spent um, my free time writing, and uh, I like to travel. I've, I've been to, I think the last count was 22 countries and wow. 26 of the states, although a lot of the states was on business, so I didn't really get to see as much as I would have liked. So that's that's my thing. You know, right now we have a 96-year-old mother that we I'll take care of. So you said you retired to write. Is this your first book that you've fully uh, written? Well, I started this 10 years ago and then kind of put it aside because I wasn't sure how much I wanted in there and where I was going with it. And I wrote, and then I taught a class of Italian for tourists and they were asking me all these questions, not so much about, you know, about traveling and different things. And I said, wait a minute. This information that I was giving them isn't out there. So I decided to write a travel guide that has a lot of the information. You don't find a regular travel guide. Kind of kind of common sense things that I learned the hard way on my, I guess it's, what, 16 trips to Italy. So, uh, so I wrote a travel guide, which was published uh, in 2012, and I've updated it since. In fact, I'm getting ready to update it again. Although most of the stuff in there is not time sensitive. It's kind of common sense. Why is your story such an important one to tell? I think because it shows what happened during the war uh, coming from the, the public. You know, you hear, you hear it from the soldiers, you hear it, but a lot of people don't know the impact that a war has on the people in the countries that are being fought over. And in our particular case, especially because that area 
over the centuries has been fought over, and especially after World War II, there were uh, probably 10 years where people were in limbo. Uh, you know, they didn't know whether they, what was going to happen. And also, that part of the story was never, never in no, any of the history books about our area. Just recently, is there is it getting a little bit of publicity? But for years, nobody knew. When I t when I told them what happened, you know, I would say to people, "Well, we were we were in essence chased out of there." And they said, "What do you mean you were?" And even my my own relatives that lived, my cousin's daughter said to me, "Well, why did you leave?" I said, "Because we were forced out. They wouldn't let my dad come back. What were we going to do?" You know. And uh, so I wanted that story to be told. Also, you know, a lot of people think when refugees come over here, they live happily ever after. It's not that easy to adjust. There was still some discrimination towards Italian when I came. You know, they all assumed you're mafia. My, my father was never in the mafia. In fact, that part of Italy, the mafia doesn't even exist, you know. But in, and so they just, there's some assumptions that are being made. So I wanted people to, to see what it means to go through a war what happens after to the people that are conquered, and also what happens to people when they come here. I'm still kind of resentful that I, I didn't get to grow up in my ancestral home around my relatives. You know, I, I didn't get to know some of my elderly relatives until I returned to visit, and they're all gone now. I could have, even my grandparents, you know. My grandmother came back and forth because... Uh, after my grandfather died, she used to come every other year. But as a child, you know, after after the age of seven, I didn't get to, to grow up with my grandparents. And also, you know, I, I feel I was deprived of certain things. I mean, I, I gained things by coming here, but I was also, I mean, I left this beautiful city by the sea to come to Pittsburgh in the, <laughs> in the back when it was, you know, smoggy and and dusty and all that, you, you know. You probably couldn't see the sun some days. Right. And I missed, I missed the sea. I mean, every time I go back, it's, oh, I wish I could have lived here, you know. Well, I know I've heard a lot of immigrants say that, you know, they were always told that the streets in America were paved with gold. Exactly. They didn't realize until they got here that they were going to be digging those streets. That's exactly. Do you remember how you felt before you were coming over here when your family told you you were coming to America? Do you remember, like, any of your expectations or how you felt about finding out that news? Well, we were, we were uh, shown movies of America. They showed us they showed us all these beautiful little houses with their driveways and their yards, all clean and pretty. You know, they told my dad he would be working in a farm, which he was happy about. They told us that we would have this and that. You know, they told my mother she'd have a washing machine and we'd have a TV. We were supposed to be going to New York, of course, you know, being 10 years old, not knowing that New York was not only, I knew it was a city, I didn't realize it was also a state and a huge city. And we all thought we'd be living close to each other in New York, just like we were there. And here we ended up scattered all over the place. Uh, also, you know, Pittsburgh was a shock. I mean, they didn't show us the the, the steel mills and the, the dirty streets. I mean, when we came here and my mother had to wash her clothes sometime twice after she hung them out to dry, because of the soot, it was shocking. It was shocking. Honestly, I didn't think about the adjustment of learning a new language. 
I'm kind of an adventurous person, so I don't, you know, I, I never thought about it. All I thought was, oh, I'm going to be going. I used to watch the movies, and I'm going to be going, you know, where the movie stars are, where the cowboys are. I was disappointed we were coming to Pennsylvania. You know, I thought, <laughs> well, I'd like to go to far west where the cowboys are. I guess we didn't really think about some of the adjustments. We were we were escaping from something. All we knew, we wanted to get away from the communists. We wanted, we were concerned that there might be another war because, you know, Italy and, and Yugoslavia were fighting over that territory. And as soon as there was that fear, everybody signed up to go. And I have relatives. I mean, I have relatives in the U.K. Uh, my one uncle, he's dead now. He was in Belgium. And I just found out recently on my on my uh, maternal grandfather's side, I have relatives in Brazil. So we have relatives all over the place. And what year was it that you came to America? 1951. It was funny because we arrived on Thanksgiving. They were just serving us dinner, including ice cream in the shape of uh, turkeys. And we were looking out the window, and I saw the Statue of Liberty. And it was green. I said, green? I kept expecting it to be marble like some of the statues in Italy. So I was really surprised that it, and disappointed that it was green. I know that, you know, the first half of your book is talking about World War II, Italy. Would you like to share some of those stories from that experience? You know, I was very little when the war was going on. Uh, but I do remember, I remember, you know, as I talked about the Nazis coming in looking for people. I remember them marching, you know, marching around with their dogs. And it was scary. I think the scariest part was... You know, my grandfather, every time he left for work in the morning, we didn't know if he'd be coming back because whenever uh, the partisans that were in the area killed a German, they would grab a bunch of Italian workers and shoot them. So when my grandfather, my, my, my grandmother used to get, every morning she'd get down, you know, and pray to her favorite saints that he would return home because we didn't know, you know, if, if that day was going to be the day that he would be selected. So there was that fear, and another another funny thing that happened was, you know, people there didn't have a refrigerator, so they would put their food on the windowsill, you know, to keep, this was in the wintertime, because not in the summer, keep cool, and sometimes they would put it in water. And uh, and we had a cat, and it, she had a bad habit of going around pilfering food, so sometimes they'd drag, you know, food from the neighbors, and my mother would give it back, but one time she came home dragging this link of sausage, and we figured it came from German headquarters. So we we didn't know. We didn't know what to do. We didn't want to give it back. You know, we didn't we didn't know what to do. So my mother said, that damn cat, she's going to get us killed. So we ate the sausage and figured, you know, hope they didn't find out that the cat dragged it to our house. So, but there, were, there was an atmosphere of fear. But I, actually, it was worse, or maybe because I was older and realized more what was going on, it was actually worse under the under the you know the uh, communists because some of the Germans I mean the the SS the not the were bad but some of the other Germans they were just poor people like us who had you know been dragged into a war but uh, when the communists came it was even scarier because people kept disappearing and you were afraid if you said the wrong thing you're going to end up getting killed you know. I know Victory Day in Europe was a huge celebration, mm -hmm. both in America and Europe. Did mm -hmm. you get that chance, that moment of celebration in between the end of the war and the communists taking control? No, because they took control. Sure. I mean, the Germans were gone. I, I don't know how long, how much later, but I would say it was just a matter of weeks, you know. And why were the communists so much worse, would you say? 
because um, we didn't expect that, and we didn't we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what was going on. We kept hearing rumors of people disappearing. I mean, we knew, you know, it wasn't like now that there's so much communication. You know, just like we didn't really know what the Germans were doing until after the war. I mean, we knew they were gathering people and taking them places, but we didn't know, you know, exactly what was going on because it wasn't the type of communication you have now. And you had mentioned that they took control of your father's farm, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you like to explain a little bit more about that? Well, under communism, you know, people don't own things. It's everything belongs to, to everybody. Private property became public property. Whatever you sold, part of the money went to for everybody. The dinar, which was their local currency, wasn't worth anything. So even if you sold something, part of it went to them, and you didn't get a lot of money for it. Plus, there were a whole lot of things going on. People were coming and going, and it was just a bad time. Post my, my father wasn't allowed to come back. My one uncle was still missing. And uh, he, he returned, I, it was a matter of months, but all, you know, within the same year. And my father ended up going to Trieste, so we had to move. We were forced. We, were, we didn't even have time to wait to find a place. They kicked us out of my grandmother's home because they wanted to put one of their people. They were bringing communists from, not only from the area, but from other parts of uh, the former Yugoslavia. And some of them were so primitive they never seen even a even a nut house. They used to urinate in the streets and defecate on the street. My grandmother, when my grandparents finally left in uh, nineteen fifty, I think it was nineteen fifty four. They they stuck it out because they kept hoping that it would end up back under Italy. So they stuck it out until the, it was finally decided on a permanent basis that Capodista, which is now called Copper K O P E R, would go to uh, Yugoslavia. Uh, they moved also because they had put a crazy lady in in the apartment where we were, because my grandparents were on one floor, we were on the other. They put a crazy lady in there, and she used to do her business in the basement. So, And she used to set fire, so they were worried she burned the house down. So that's when they left. And you said your father was in the service. My father was in the service with the Italians, of course. And then when Italy surrendered, I think it was, uh, what, 1943, uh, somewhere around there, uh, then he kind of remained where he was. He was at the southern part of Italy near, I think he was down in Taranto. And uh, he was, the American picked him up because they would pick up, you know, a lot of the, well, they were prisoners, but they weren't really because we had surrendered, you know. So they picked my father up. And I don't know the whole story, to be honest. All I know was that he came up with the Americans up to the booth, the Italian booth, and he was given the job regarding the food supply, so they must have trusted him, but they weren't giving him any weapons, you know. And then when he arrived outside Trieste, he destroyed all the papers. They actually given him they given him fatigues and they given him papers saying that, you know, he collaborated with the Allies and my dad had to destroy them because if he ran into the uh Germans who were leaving, and they found out that he had co- collaborated with the enemies. They would have shot him immediately. And my uncle was down there also in the southern part. Well, my uncle actually, and that's in my book, my uncle was in um, Greece. He was with the Italian Navy when Italy surrendered. And what the Germans did, they were grabbing the Italians and executing them. So my uncle and his uh, bunch of people 
were in Corfu, and they swam to a nearby island, a little island. I, I don't know if it's part of that area. I mean, it was part of Greece, but I don't know if it's outside of Corfu. And uh, they swam there, and then they there was an abandoned boat because people, you know, had left everything. There was an abandoned boat. They took the boat. Oh, when they were in the island, they looked through the binoculars, and the, some either they didn't know how to swim or they were afraid to swim, stayed. Well, the ones that remained, they watched them get shot by the Germans. They took a bunch of Greeks and a bunch of Italians, and they shot them. And so they grabbed the boat, and they uh, they went to Italy. And then my uncle was picked up. He had a choice, either going up, back up with the uh, Yugoslavian partisans or the English. So my uncle chose wisely the English, because if he would have chosen the partisans, he wouldn't have made it. And since he was, my uncle was in charge of dismantling mines, uh, they lost their their guy. You know, they had a minesweeper, but they lost their guy. So my uncle ended up uh, actually sweeping mines for the English all the way up the booth. Now, I know you have a lot of great stories in your book, but if you had to pick one that was maybe your favorite or particularly fond to you, what would it be? I guess it was probably the 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 trip over coming over here. I mean, there are a lot of stories about the war and that, but that, that was kind of, because people don't realize, they think, oh, you come over here, you know, they, they look at the luxury liners, and it was nothing like a luxury liner. I think that was, I mean, we were bounced around, we were in these rooms, in beds that uh, had railings on them to keep us from falling off, and we were being smacked from room to room. They didn't have regular, because it, it used to be an army vessel, so they didn't have regular facilities, like we didn't have a a bathroom in the room. There was a shower room, and then there were toilets. And now, on our ship, we were lucky. The toilets actually had doors, although the doors didn't lock. But the ones my aunt and uncle came on, they didn't even have doors on there. Somebody had to stand in front when you went to the bathroom. In our case, I remember one time I was sitting on the toilet, and I got hit by a wave. You know, the ship went up, and I went flying against the railing. <laughs> After that, I never went again until unless there was someone there to guard the door. But, uh, yeah, that, that was probably, I would say, one of the scariest times because you figure it's November in the English Channel. We are being tossed all over the place. I mean, it was like a paper boat. How would you say these experiences even affect you now? I know you had mentioned that you don't like crowds. Do you want to elaborate on how some of these things? Well, I, I still get anxious, you know, at certain situations. I've, uh, for the longest time, I used to get anxiety attacks. I've kind of work my way out of it over the years. But there's certain situations, you know, like I said, crowds. I don't like crowds. I don't like firecrackers. I finally got used for the longest time, I don't like firecrackers. Now I'm used to it, fireworks. But as far as how it affected me, I think it made me appreciate things more, you know, what I have. And also, it made me appreciate going back there seeing what I missed. You know, a lot of people take for granted living by the sea and the beauty, the natural beauty. And I I appreciate that more. How do you feel when you go back there? You said you visit there quite often. Well, I, I'm okay when I'm in Trieste because Trieste holds good memories, despite the fact that we were living in refugee camps. It still holds good memories because I enjoy school there. You know, I enjoy, I have friends. I, I like the, the neighborhood. So I enjoy going to Trieste, and I have relatives there, you know, that, that I'm close to. But going across the border, even though Capodistro is now very safe, very 
beautiful city. It's very modernized, in fact, too modernized because they mixed the old with the new, which isn't pretty. I mean, it's got one end that looks like Miami and the other end is, you know, this old Pretoria Palace, which I don't think mixes. But uh, I still get nervous. I have that every time I'm there, I have the feeling of anxiety. And when I'm on that bus leaving, it's like, you know, I go because I have relatives there, and, and it fills me with emotion. When I see my grandmother's house, I can see her out there with her chickens. And I know, especially, like, for my mother's generation, it was tough. For me, it was a little easier. But for my grandparents, their life was destroyed. My grandfather never, he lost his business. I mean, he, you know, they had a thriving fishing business. He couldn't do anything afterwards. He tried to, you know, do a, he did a little fishing in Trieste and, here he worked, you know, he worked for the borough. He was a garbage man for a while, but he was he was 60, you know, and what can you do? So their lives, their lives were destroyed because they could never recapture what they had, you know, different different culture, different way of living. And my, my poor grandmother, she was going back and forth after my grandfather died for 10 years. She spent one year here in Pittsburgh and one year in Trieste with her, you know, her daughters here and her siblings there. And then when she finally, she was 78, they were going to uh, tear down where she was living. As it turned out, they didn't. But And she was getting older, so my aunt talked her into moving to Pittsburgh permanently. You know, I can only imagine the pain she felt having to leave, you know, the area where she grew up and her siblings who she knew she would never see again. At that time, I mean, now it's probably easier because you have... Uh, FaceTime and all that, you know. But at that time, it was only a telephone, and it cost, it cost like twenty dollars a minute. So, and every time she would call, she couldn't even talk. She she was allowed to call once a year. You know, she lived with my aunt. She was allowed to call once a year, and maybe twice a year, and then because it cost a lot of money, and she would end up spending all her time crying. You know, it used to break my heart. And she was a brave woman. She traveled by herself back and forth. In fact, the last time she came over was amazing. She used to go via ship, and then it turned out the last time she came, it was cheaper to fly than to go via ship. And all her relatives, aren't you afraid, aren't you afraid? She says, heck no, I'm 78. I'm so glad I'm getting this opportunity to fly. So she flew for the first time by herself overseas at the age of 78. I think I'd take more after her. Sounds like it. So you mentioned this was such a long process. It took you about 10 years to write the book. Yeah. I mean, what finally sort of gave you the ambition maybe to actually start a project like that? Actually, I've been in the a, in a making for a lot of years, and I, was, I kept telling people, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write a book, and I'm like, yeah, right. Then I think the computer helped because I was a terrible typist. So, you know, trying for me trying to type it and make changes. And then finally when the computer came along, I thought, oh, I can do this. You know, and the process, how I was going to write it, I didn't want it to be... A, a biography. I want it to be like a bunch of snippets of. So I took a couple courses in memoir writing. I said, "Oh, I think I can do that." Then I didn't know when where to stop. Like I said, there was another chapter which made it too long. Plus, there was a lot of things in there that like involved my relatives and and you know I just didn't know if it was a good idea. Even my some personal things. So I thought, no, I'm going to stop with high school graduation. And then and then I wrote a chapter about the first time I returned, and then I, I kind of wrote an epilogue summarizing what happened because my, my siblings, you know, when I was in high school, they were still all in grade school. So I, uh, I wanted to kind of document what happened to them and to show that we survived because everyone but my sister 
has at least two years of college. My sister went into the uh, she went into the gardening business. She owned the greenhouse for years, so that was our thing. But we all managed, you know, pretty well. I mean, I had a fairly successful career at PPG. I, I made it to middle management. Uh, my brother, my one brother, is a well, he's a pretty well-known artist around Pittsburgh. One of his paintings is part of the Carnegie's permanent collection. So he's he did well in that field. You know, and, and my other brothers, I mean, they both work for the Postal Service, so... Everybody did okay. Everybody got, like I said, except for my sister, we all got at least a couple of years of college in there. And uh, so, you know, we survived. Same with my cousin and her her, her sister and all, all the second generation are college educated and fairly successful, you know, whatever they chose to do. Was there any time when you were writing the book that maybe you were getting discouraged? You kind of felt like maybe it was just too big of a project. I mean, 10 years is a long time to keep pushing through. I had taken some writing courses when I was in high school and college. And most of the, the writing I did when I worked for PPG, I wrote procedure manuals. I mean, I wrote correspondence. I really, the whole time, the 31 years that I worked there, I did very little writing that there was anything creative. You know, it was mostly business writing. So I would write and then I would slow down and and uh, I would add some things. And also, I was getting more information, you know. I asked my mother some things. So, And then when I went back to Italy and I spent some time with some of my cousins that were teenagers, when the first time I went back, who weren't born when I left, uh, some of my second cousins, I was asking them, you know, about things that they got from their grandparents. So I got I gathered a whole bunch of information to fill out what I already knew because I knew what had happened, but some of it I didn't really understand why or I didn't have the details, so I got a lot of the details. And then the biggest thing was my interview with my mother's cousin who spent, you know, almost a year in Buchenwald. I mean, he filled me in on the whole story, which I had recorded and have in great detail. So it took a long time, and then I took a break as I wasn't sure where where it was going or what I wanted to how I wanted to end it, what I wanted to put in there, and I had a lot of advice from the various writers groups that I belonged to, and so then I took a break. I took a year. I put it aside for a year, and I, I, that's when I wrote the travel guide, and uh, then I picked it up again. So, but it took me almost a whole year just to clean it up and you know format it and all that other good stuff. Do you have another project coming up? Uh, right now I'm writing fun stuff. My next thing, I'm writing a bunch of travel stories from all my, because uh, I've written some, and Jim will tell you from my, my writer's group, and they think they're pretty interesting because things always seem to happen to me when I travel. So, and I travel mostly on my own. I mean, I do go on some tours, but so my next project's going to be travel stories. I'm, I've started already. I have a bunch put together from my various trips. What advice would you give to somebody who kind of feels the same way you do, that they want to share their story of their family history or their personal history? Take some courses in, in memoir writing or, or uh, biography writing. Read a lot of, lot of books that have done that and read. But write it. I mean, it's important. Even, even if you don't do a great job or you're not a writer, if you can't write it yourself, get somebody to help you. But I think it's important that people that have a story to tell, tell them. Thank you so much for talking to us today and sharing your story. Thank you. I appreciate it. I hope I did a good job for you. 
guest today has been Pittsburgh area author Bruna Rickabon. Her recent book, Memoirs of a Refugee Girl, is available at the Heritage Museum. Visit us at 224 East 7th Avenue, Trenum, Pennsylvania. We are open Wednesdays and Saturdays from 11 till 3. You can also give us a call at 724-224-7666. Visit us online at akvhs.org and be sure to join us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter to learn more about our exhibits and upcoming events. Thanks for joining us on Alakiski Chronicle, the podcast of the Allegheny Kiski Valley Historical Society and Heritage Museum. I'm Jamie Stoner. See you next time. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network, a nonprofit project of the Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh Oral History Initiative.